Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, welcome back to Soul Sisters. This is Jesse Katz here with Dara Gallup at New York City's Chord Club. And we are spending the morning with an amazing artist. She's formerly of the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and now she's out on her own. She's a cellist and a singer-songwriter, and also one of those very cool people who calls New Orleans her home, which we have a lot to ask her about. We were lucky enough to snag her while she's in town here for a concert at Lincoln Center tonight. She has a new album out this month called A Day for the Hunter, A Day for the Prey, which we will also ask her a lot about. So let's get to today's episode with Layla McCalla. Layla, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Um, you live in New Orleans, right? Mm-hmm. How long have you been in New York just for, for the Since show? yesterday. Okay. <laughs> Do you get up here a lot? Um, you know, in I used to get up here a little bit more, but um, not 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 that much, which is sad because my whole family is here. Right. Yeah. Where do they live in this city? My dad outside? lives in Brooklyn. Yeah. And my grandma and cousins live in Queens and Long Island. Nice. And uh, and I have uncles and aunts and cousins that live in all over the city. Yeah. Yeah. So. Are you the only one in New Orleans? Um, actually, family? no, my, my sister lives in New Orleans and my mom, um, she lives in Haiti, but she bought a house in New Orleans recently. Amazing. And so, yeah, it's been kind of funny to see my, my family kind of galvanize. Were you the, the first one to go down there and then your sister followed and mom? Yeah, yeah, I was. How did you choose it? Oh, well, I had been going down to New Orleans for a few years and playing music in the street and funding my trips that way. Really? Mm-hmm. Funding wow. your other trips? No, funding my trips to New Orleans because I just like fell in love with the city. And so I, I knew I could like make enough cash to cover my expenses. And that's how I started going to New so Orleans. So smart. Yeah. You should do that. Well, <laughs> busking. Yeah. So how was that experience? Was that something you had done elsewhere before you brought it to New Orleans? Like that, that just as a thing to me is so admirable and so daunting to, it's like a, a level of putting yourself out there that, um, is really must be exhilarating and cool and scary yeah. and all of the things. Yeah. I, you know, it, it's funny. I, um, I played with a banjo player named Morgan O'Kane. Um, before I moved to New Orleans, I had been playing in his band for a couple of years, and uh, he busks a lot at uh, Washington Square Park and Union Square and in the subway. 
especially Bedford Avenue, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in Williamsburg. It's and a, that's uh, a hot stop. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Uh, it's a good spot. And so <laughs> I had been doing that with him and then just kind of became part of a community of people who, you know, maybe don't completely make their living that way, but, you know, do it regularly. And um, it, I think, yeah, maybe at first it might have been intimidating, but... Um, I just really enjoyed that. You know, I, I don't do that anymore. Did you get good responses? Like, yeah, we got a, I mean, we got a lot of good responses playing like bluegrassy kind of banjo music, yeah. uh, old time, you know, feel. And, uh, but when I was playing alone in the street, I was playing classical music. I was playing Bach, like Baroque music from the 1700s so um you do that in the bedford stop and I've done, i think Park i have and... done that before at the bedford stop um like what plays the best in a subway what plays the best i mean being loud yeah <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of noise yeah um yeah yeah it's interesting what breaks through because new yorkers are just they don't notice anything yeah so i almost think that something like bach you might say wow that might make people... It's true. There is kind of like a, a numbness mm-hmm. sometimes to it. But, it, it, you know, that's, I think, one of the reasons that I I knew that New York wasn't really going to do it for me in the long term. is because I felt like that feeling kind of was part of my life in all these other ways that I didn't... Like an apathy or something? Like, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Just like I was teaching kids and I was doing all these random gigs with singer songwriters just as a cellist accompanying them and you know I felt really like uh I don't I don't I don't particularly like any of these things I was bartending and I started to feel like oh god and now I'm like you know toxifying people and I'm part of this toxic system and you know up till five in the morning drinking and you know it's just like I don't want to live my life this way there has to be another way (laughs) um and it was hard because New York is such a I don't know it's like once you're in the system it's like how do I how do I not be a part of it anymore right um but I started making those trips to New Orleans and you know really connecting with people musically and creatively on a completely different plain you know and and without the stress of like oh I gotta be at this other thing you know we have to plan like this you know yeah uh, everything in a box and it just felt like oh this this might be something good for me in my life wow and the response to live music there is totally different like people don't just walk by and sort of not give a care they they really inspire you it's it feels like a city of music yeah and people respond accordingly that's how yeah. it is and yeah. so you probably think, got yeah I think people really um go to New Orleans to to see music mm-hmm. and to be part of the music there um you know there at least there's a, a big contingent of of tourists that uh are engaged in the musical scene in that way um but are, yeah are most of the people that you play with down there also transplants yeah, there's a lot of transplants, yeah. especially, you know, I'm I'm a transplant. I it's it's funny cuz I can count on my hand how many people I know like actually grew up in New Orleans. Yeah. Um and other than that, it's the city is definitely undergoing a big gentrification process and it's it's hard to to see all the all the issues there. Um because of gentrification yeah because of gentrification and because new orleans has such a unique 
culture and and is uniquely placed geographically um I feel like there's yeah it's hard to it's hard to to know how to deal with that yeah I mean that's the catch right it's like it's fantastic that all this money is now pouring into New Orleans it certainly needed it but then what's the trade-off right mm-hmm. yeah right I mean I, I can't help but think of uh that Naomi Klein book, Disaster Capitalism. I don't know if you guys have ever read it, but it's a really excellent book. And in it, she talks about like these, you know, disaster situations and, you know, this certain style of economics that uh, takes advantage of that. And I see a lot of that happening in New Orleans and it's sad. And at the same time, it's like, you know, we need the resources, we need the money and, um, you know, and maybe it isn't just money. Maybe it's more resources because I think people give money a lot of power when, in fact, it's like, you know, uh, I think that's just our, our society tells you that you need more money all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's really like, well, we need healthy food. We need access to health care. We need, you know, public transportation that functions well. And right, we right. need our potholes to be fixed, <laughs> right, right. you know. Yeah, but that I mean, that is money in some way. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's not, you know, I think that it's it's hard because you talk about like redistribution of wealth and it's like, well, I don't know. There's just so much greed that uh, I, I guess I, I'm thinking of it in a way of like, okay, well, maybe we don't need to make more money ourselves. We just need to have access to things right. that <laughs> make us healthy and right. able-bodied citizens, yeah. you know? yeah. Um, and yeah. you grew up, your parents were very involved in the, in social activism and mm-hmm. issues like these. So what was that household like growing up? Like, were you very influenced by that? Were you witnessing their work? Much? Yeah. My dad was the director of an organization called the National Coalition for Haitian Rights for about 20 years. And um, he was always like doing interviews with uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal and and NPR when when things were happening in Haiti, especially in the 90s, a lot of, I mean, really throughout Haitian history, there's been a lot of political upheaval that's led to a lot of different human rights issues. What and, was happening in the 90s? Uh, well, Aristide was ousted, um, and then he was replaced, and um, there's a lot of protests in the street, and uh, the elections, you know, even now Haiti is going through a lot of... Uh, a lot of political upheaval with the elections. Martelly just stepped down as president, and now there's an interim president. The elections were canceled, so you know it's just a lot of uh, a lot of things going on that I was always kind of aware were happening. And you know, they the, the organization had a lot of fundraisers and had different people involved. And my my parents were going to protests a lot. And then my mom went to law school when I was in fourth grade. So from when I was in fourth grade to sixth grade, she was at, uh, in, at Rutgers Law School. So and you were born in New York? I was born in New York. Then moved to New Jersey? Queens, New York. Moved to New Jersey when I was five. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, my mom became an immigration school. lawyer wow. working with the U.S. government um, for, I guess, back then it was called INS, and now it's like USCIS or something like that. <laughs> Um, and I only know that because my husband's from Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it wasn't called the INS anymore. Yeah, it's oh, funny. Uh, I forget what you, United States Immigration Services Committee or something like that. 
Um, when did your parents come here? My parents to this country? Yeah. My dad, when he was 13, um, I guess that was 1968. Sorry, Dad. Outed him. (laughs) (laughs) And my mom in 1965 when she was five. Okay. And yeah, so my parents have a really interesting story, actually, um, because my my dad, my, my grandfather, my mom's dad, ran a newspaper called IT Progress. Haiti Progress, which was like a socialist newspaper for a really long time. It's just been a few years that he hasn't been the the director of that paper. And my dad worked for my grandfather, and that's how my parents met. And then, you know, kind of had a... um, some some disagreements about you know what the the best way forward for Haiti and for human rights and and progress and um and so my dad started working for the National Coalition for Haitian Rights and became the director um and so it's kind of funny because politics and you know uh conversations about society have been a big conversation in my family since I was really little and I grew up kind of developing a a conscience um, around those kinds of issues. Wow. And Did, was there simultaneously music happening? Mm, I wish there was. The <laughs> where does the music thing come yeah, from? Not the, your parents? Well, I don't know where the music thing comes from. I think that music is like a really, uh, a really, a really big healer and a really uh, important teacher if you connect to it. And um, I started playing cello when I was eight years old in fourth grade how'd you choose cello i thought it was a flute and i got stuck playing (laughs) what do you mean you thought it was a flute well i just didn't know what it was we had three different options um to choose at the end of third grade they said what do you want to play in the fourth grade and i said cello and my (laughs) thinking in your head right i was thinking like piccolo you know (laughs) i didn't know but my parents of course didn't object to that they were like it's incredible our daughter wants to play the cello (laughs) And uh, I remember that that day that, I mean, I remember it really clearly, walking into uh, the cafeteria had all these different musical stations. And there was the woodwinds, there was the brass, there was percussion, there was strings. And I walked right up to the woodwind table and uh, someone was calling Ooh. my name, Layla McCalla, Layla McCalla. And uh, I turned around, and that was the first time I saw a cello. And I said, okay. (laughs) And not a lot of people signed up for cello, and so I got stuck playing it. Were you resistant at first? Were you... Well, I mean... Or how how quickly did you warm up to the idea of playing the cello? I think I just, you know, I I don't remember particularly being that upset about it. Um, That was just your nature, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) I could get really upset about things. Yeah, Yeah, I seem chill. I I wasn't chill back then. (laughs) Ask my mom. (laughs) Like, I mean, if I had been stuck with an instrument that I had no interest in playing or knew about, it would not have been easy. It wouldn't have lasted long. Well, you know, they, everything was in a classroom setting. And so I think that I, like, became friends with the other girls in the class. And I was, like, the least focused kid in the class for sure like I was the the girl who was always like talking to her you know neighbor or just being really spacey um which is something that runs in my family (laughs) that's funny I'm like thinking of the kids that you were friends with in school then and they're probably like 
how did Layla have this like amazing career? Do you remember like she just talked the whole time and it didn't seem that interesting? Right. Well, that was in the beginning. And then, well, I have to say playing a string instrument, it takes a long time to be able to make a good sound. Yeah. It's not like the I, guitar I remember that sound of kids fingers. learning violin. Oh my God. It's a sound terrible. that still haunts me yeah, as an adult. Terrible. Yeah. <laughs> my sister played violin and it was it was torture for everyone. <laughs> but cello was also torture for everyone. Yes. I remember once during Thanksgiving uh, I was practicing and I was like, Mom, how does it sound? She was like, Terrible. <laughs> Keep on playing. <laughs> <laughs> so which you, we, which we laugh at now. At the time, I was yeah. like, "Oh, I thought it was you know, terrible." Keep on playing. Yeah. That's a good mom. Yeah. Good mom. <laughs> um, so you would take classes, or like there would be lessons in school. There were lessons in school, and then eventually the other girls were getting private lessons, and so I wanted private <laughs> lessons too. And um, and that's when you know my teachers were like, "Oh, you're actually you kind of have a good ear. You actually hear you know what you." want to play you hear the melody and um and I think that that's really what guided a lot of my my passion for music was feeling like oh I hear different harmonies and and melodies and um I I can sort of make an okay sound now and so I I forget what happened but there was some sort of falling out with that teacher and so I had another teacher who her name was Cynthia Longley and she had just graduated from college, and I was her first student ever. And I just worshipped her. I thought she was the coolest person ever. And so whatever she wanted me to play, whatever she wanted me to do, I really worked hard to impress her. What kind of cello playing did she do? Was it classical? classical? Classical music. But, you know, I started getting into playing more like real classical music, not just like the, the little kitty arrangements of things. Yeah. And that's when I started developing more of a passion for the music. And she shared with me a lot of recordings. I mean, it was a lot more of a holistic experience and, um, than just like being in a classroom with a bunch of other kids. It was like, you know, check this out, listen to this. She took me to live concerts. And she had a teacher who studied, who was teaching at Juilliard, who still studies at, at Juilliard. I mean, teaches at Juilliard. And, um, and so eventually she got to a point where she felt like, you know, I'm not that great of a teacher. You have a lot of talent and I want you to, you know, I want you to have the best education as possible because I think that you could really, you know, actually become a cellist. How old were you at that point? I was about 12. Wow. Yeah. Did that excite you? Were you like... Oh, oh yeah. And she passed me off to her teacher, whose name was Andre Milianov. And he teaches still at Juilliard, as I mentioned. And um, and he kind of took me on as a little bit of a charity case because he was, you know, really expensive, his lessons. It was like my parents were like, what? <laughs> um, but, you know, he um, really, he taught me how to play cello, like how to make a really nice sound and how to be musical. And so I went from kind of sucking to kind of being good and and the better I got the more excited I got about music and and about uh you know advancing my playing um and I, I really fell in love with the cello and then it became like okay this is what I'm what I want to do with my life so at like 12 13 sorry That's yeah okay. if you're yeah. excelling at an interest instrument like the cello is the assumption that you're going to just join an orchestra I mean 
Yeah. I mean, I think that what I really fell in love with was chamber music. Okay. Um, which someone Like said, at that age? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Someone said to me, um, every cellist says that, like a couple of days ago. <laughs> um, and, it, and maybe that's true because it's so fun to play that kind of music, to hear the way that the parts come together. And, um, you know, I just, I just loved that, like being in a kind of a smaller ensemble. And I loved being in orchestra too, but... Um, you know, that wasn't particularly my passion. I just liked playing music. I just liked playing cello. And I liked being able to talk about the parts in this intimate way um, that felt not as possible. Were you studying theory and things like that as, at that point yet? Yeah, I did like some music camps and we talked about theory and stuff. I was never very good at, uh, at, at theory. I think it's just uh, accessing a different part of your brain that I... I was just like, oh, I just want to play music. I'm more interested in the music part than the how this is music part, right. <laughs> you know. Which is helpful <laughs> when you have a naturally good ear and you don't need to, right. <laughs> to analyze. Right, and that became yeah. a challenge for me because I would hear certain things that weren't on the page, and mm. so that was always kind of difficult for me because um, I'd be like playing everything correctly up to a certain point, and then I was like, well, that's not what it says on the page, and you know, so that that's like the classical world is like how to interpret what what is there, right? And um and eventually, you know, a lot of a lot of things I guess happened, um from obviously from when I was thirteen <laughs> to when I was like that's in college. <laughs> yeah, things happen. And now we're here. Yeah. yeah, but around that time, you were you were saying to yourself this is something I want to pursue. Yeah. And I think it was really like having people that really believed in me around me um, made a huge impact on me. It, it made me more motivated because I was like, well, if they believe that I can do it, then yeah, I feel like I can do it too. And your dream though, at that point would have been to do chamber, some, some form of classical music, mm -hmm. because at that point, what else was there even available for you to check out? as far as other cellists doing things that weren't in that genre? Well, I remember my cello teacher sharing with me the Rasputina CD, and that was like, it's kind of like heavy metal, like four cellists who sing oh, I feel and like play, I and I loved that CD. I loved that. But I never, you know, I was never like, yeah, I want to sing and play like that too. That wasn't something that really crossed my mind Yeah, at that time. That came a lot later. Um because now there's a bunch to to draw from. I yeah. feel like from, from just however long ago that was. Because there are more of them or it's just <laughs> because, easier to find them? Because I think people are are using the instrument in a in more yeah. creative ways or just different ways and Yeah, well I think also just like yeah, academic institutions are realizing like we have to expose our students to different kinds of music because it really enriches their musicianship. Um, whereas I think in the old school, it's kind of like very strict. And, and also that's one of the ways that, you know, younger people can play gigs is learning how to play more by ear and, or, or being able to read charts, but, um, how to accompany other people that are playing folk music or rock or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm happy that it's more accessible to, to young cellists now. But um, but I think that there's still a lot of um, sort of stodginess in the classical music culture that I don't know how that's going to change. Right. 
I mean, thank God for YouTube, right? It's like you can kind of find the heroes that you're looking for or needing. Right. You know, I can just like imagine all the kids now who can see Mm -hmm. you on YouTube and they wouldn't normally be exposed to that kind of playing. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And and also to hear like, you know, yeah, classical music is is an option. It doesn't have to be the option. Right. Right. With that instrument. Right. 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 Um. So you continue just with the private teacher through high school? Um, Well, I guess, you know, life happens. My family moved to West Africa when I was 15 for about two years. And so I was kind of taken out of this track of, like, preparing for conservatory auditions. And um, suddenly I was in West Africa. I lived in Accra in Ghana. Wow. And um, why did they move there? My mother was uh, working for an NGO that was processing refugees from uh, Sierra Leone and Liberia who lived outside of Accra. And um, and that's why we moved there. And um, your mom is a badass. (laughs) That's what I'm gathering. Yeah. 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 She's very she's very cool. We're very (laughs) close. She's very funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she's, you know, she's like such a brave woman. Yeah. She's kind of, uh, I mean, she's definitely an amazing, amazing, brave woman. She has a lot of drive and she's really, you know, interested in being a part of the world. Right now she's in Jordan for her job now. And uh, it, I think it's been tough for her because we talk on Skype a lot. And my daughter Skypes with her, points to my phone and goes, Gigi, Gigi. And um and so she's far away, but uh, I've just been so busy on the road. It's been hard to talk. <laughs> yeah, I'm like driving, baby, right. sound check, show. <laughs> so so um, when yeah. when she told you that you were moving to Africa, were you like what? Well, it was you know it was kind of a um at at first it was. Well, I should say my my parents divorced right after we moved back. And so it was kind of like the beginning of the end of their relationship. Yeah. So at first it was just my sister and my mom. And then there was an attempt at reconciliation. And, you know, uh, my dad and me moved to Africa. And then I moved back and I had my senior year of high school. And I was in school with kids that I hadn't been in school with since I was in eighth grade. And that was crazy. I I went to three different high schools in four years, and I was trying to get back into being part of the youth orchestra and just coming to terms with the fact that I wasn't ready to do the conservatory auditions. Um, and so I, I went to a liberal arts college, Smith College, mm-hmm. after that, and um, which required no audition, just, you know, uh, just being academically, you know, uh, Sufficient. Sufficient, exactly. <laughs> what were your sort of practicing routines at that time? Like, mm-hmm. were, like, what is the level of being dedicated enough to say, I, I am ready for conservatory versus I'm not ready? Right. Well, I think that uh, being able to perform movements from a, a concerto is a big part of, like, auditioning in the first place for conservatory. And I, I hadn't tackled that. Uh, so how much time would you give in a day or in a in a week? Or? I've never been someone that can practice for like eight hours. You know, some people could go in and they just play and play and play. And I'm I'm like three hours max kind of person. Cool. <laughs> um, that's so cool to which hear. I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm yeah. totally fine with that because I think that uh, it's just uh, how much you can focus 
on what you're actually working on and your brain can actually absorbs a lot more when you're focused on doing things correctly whereas like you know a lot of, I mean, and who knows I mean maybe for someone practicing 12 hours a day totally works and it gets them where they want to go but for me it felt like I was you know your muscles start to remember everything you know it's like a computer in mm-hmm. your fingers all these tiny little muscles are remembering things to do incorrectly and so if you're just playing that over and over again you know you're I feel like uh, the practice session is not as fruitful. Um, But at that time, I was doing like scales and etudes and then, you know, some like sonatas and and concerto movements or, you know, but I wasn't I wasn't ready to like go into an audition and really like, wow, anyone, you know, (laughs) like I could play some stuff. I could obviously the, the Bach cello suites are a big part of it for for a cellist. It's like. Everyone plays Bach if uh, if you're a string player, um, and so yeah, I just you know I just wasn't just wasn't ready in in that way. Um, so you went to Smith. So I went to Smith. I but, by the way, it. did you practice? Yeah. Did you bring that? I hated it. <laughs> did this you is bring a PSA against Smith College? <laughs> no, I mean it was wonderful. If I wasn't studying music, I probably would have stayed because the professors were incredible. I just didn't connect to the place. I didn't connect to the to the other students. I, I had a really hard time, you know, finding uh, a sense of community, of something that I wanted to be a part of. I thought, oh, you go to college to meet, you know, the incredible people that you love. And, and now, of course, I have a couple of friends from those years at Smith that are like some of my best friends. That you connected with after? And I connected with after yeah. that I had met while I was there. And then we like kind of resurfaced in my life, um, which is funny. But um, yeah, I if I wasn't studying music, I probably would have stayed there because they were very supportive. I had a, a, a nice scholarship and, you know, it was just such a nurturing environment if you for for academics. What were you into academically at that point? I was really into philosophy and I had this dream of going to Brazil for a year and so I was studying Portuguese and wait I why Brazil that. just want to I go I loved Brazilian music okay. I, lo- I love uh there's a type of music from Brazil called uh Tropicalia mm-hmm. yeah and That's I loved stuff. that stuff yeah. you know like that combination of rock and roll and and roots music from Brazil I just really fell in love with it yeah mm-hmm. And um, and so that was my idea. And, and I had seen cello players like in in that context of music. And I was excited about, you know, the possibility of, of doing that. But, um, you know, it became pretty clear that I wasn't going to stay at Smith College for very long. I remember calling my dad and I said, I think I'm I don't like it here after two weeks there. And my dad said, you've only been there for two weeks. <laughs> I was like, no, I know it's not going to work. And they um, were supportive about music. Yeah, my parents were were always really supportive about music. They didn't exactly know, you know, what to do, which is really funny to think about when I was teaching cello to students and the parents would be like, so how do I, you know, how do I like sort of parent this practice session? How do I know that they're doing the right thing? And um, I can only imagine how my parents must have felt. When did you start teaching? Um, started teaching... Pretty much right out of college. I graduated in 2007 from NYU. Yeah, okay. I eventually transferred to NYU, which was also a really hard transition. I mean, at this point, I had been, like, moving schools, you know, every every year, every other year. And so it was like, okay, 
Once I get to NYU, I'm going to stay there, even if I hate it. <laughs> and, and did you hate it for a little bit, and then it got good? It was kind of a love-hate relationship, because okay. I think... Throughout? Um, yeah, throughout. I, I liked it more towards the end, but it was around the time that I moved to New York and uh, was studying classical music at NYU that I realized I didn't want to play classical music ah. so it's always you know it's kind of like chasing the, the dream and <laughs> yeah. then the dream goes away so what was that epiphany Changes. how did that happen well I met a cellist by the name of Rufus Cappadocia who's uh, an incredible incredible musician I met him at a party my aunt is a musician and um, a singer and plays guitar and a songwriter and she invited me to this party and there was a Haitian roots music band playing at the party and there was Rufus playing cello in Haitian roots music context yeah and it was like my brain <laughs> Light bulbs exploded right. yeah um I was just so I was so moved by his playing and I just remember feeling like that is what I want to learn how to do because that is really cool. Yeah. And that is inspiring, you know. And you hadn't connected them before. Cello and Haitian roots, all of the stuff that is now such a part of your work. Right. That that had not been there. And then all of a sudden. Yeah. I actually have a question about that because growing up. I mean, your parents are both from Haiti, so I imagine that kind of culture and art is around in the household, but were you always uh, embracive, if that's a word, it's probably not a word, of that? (laughs) Or was there a period when you rejected it as a kid and you were like, I just want to be an American kid in New York and not identify with that. And then you came around to it later. Like what was that relationship? Oh yeah, for you? definitely. Yeah. I, I remember my mom getting really upset. Cause I said, I want my name to be Lucy. Really? She was like, you have a beautiful name. <laughs> <laughs> like how old were you? Yeah. Do you think? I must've been in sixth grade. I had yeah. a lot. Oh, of... yeah. Those are the years yeah. when it would happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sad, you know, and so many little girls in particular go through it, but kids just in general, kids are so mean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, uh, I was really confused about who I was um, for a long time, I think. Did and, you get a hard time about it in school? Yeah. yeah. And I would hear other kids calling other kids Haitian as an insult. Really? Were you yeah. in a public school in, public in school. New Jersey for most yeah. of that period? Yeah. And I, and you know, I'm, I come from this family where it's like human human rights and pan-African pride and, uh, you know, Haitian American pride. My, you know, my dad was always like, you're Haitian American. And, uh, and it took me a long time to, to understand how I was that. Cause I didn't feel like I was that. I felt like I, but I didn't feel like I was American either, you know? Mm-hmm. And you I knew Haitian? that I was black for yeah. sure. You know, <laughs> that's like one thing that you know about yourself when you're growing up in the United States. Yeah, right. people make sure you know. Yeah, exactly. Did and you speak Haitian at home? My parents spoke Creole to each other, but not really to us. Um, I spent a summer with my grandmother when I was about 10, and I came back and I was fluent in Creole, and then I lost it because I didn't go back to Haiti for about 10 years uh, after that. So, yeah. How close is that to what is spoken in New Orleans, by the way? Well, New Orleans, there's so few Creole speakers. I can understand. Yeah. I can understand someone who's speaking a different kind of Creole, Mm -hmm. but the inflection and the, the, the accent and the, 
you know, the subtleties are, are different. Yeah. Creole is, uh, you know, its own language. It's very closely related to French, but, um, you know, it has uh, Spanish words, Taino words, which is the indigenous, you know, native people from the island of Saint-Domingue and, and a lot of African words. Um, so, it, it you know, Creole is like truly a, a language of survival, mm. you know, uh, so like a a slave language and it's funny because a lot of people don't even consider it a language but it really is its own language it's you know it's got all of the uh attributes of a language right um and it's not just a dialect of french which is i think what it gets reduced to a lot of the time um but yeah you know i think that i had a lot of a lot of trouble understanding who i was and it took me you know it took me a while to really to feel comfortable in my in my own skin. And was there a big Haitian community where you grew up in that part of Jersey? There was, you know, there was a Haitian community. Um, but I wasn't Like, did you have really friends a, in that community, or...? I did, and I didn't. I was, like, you know, I wasn't, like, black enough for the black girls, and I was, like, too black for the white girls. And so I always kind of felt like I didn't really fit in. And my parents were really super progressive. And so they would, you know, um, they were just very politically conscious people. And, you know, not everyone's parents were like that. You know, I remember like being in the Girl Scouts and wanting to be a cheerleader. And my mom's like, no, you're not being a cheerleader. (laughs) (laughs) She drew the line there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, (laughs) just like being jealous, like, oh, well, you know, this girl has a cool pencil collection my mom's like you're not going to care about pencil collections right. you know in 20 years from now so um god being a parent is hard it is hard it's hard because you like where do you draw that line yeah. between what your kid is going through and what they want for themselves and, right. and right. what you want for them and, and they want to have empathy for you but they don't want to overindulge this negativity that you're getting from those other kids oh yeah, yeah. exactly and my mom oh my mom would always say they're just jealous they're just jealous I remember one time I was at a party and I got slapped by this girl and I called my mom and I told her you know you have to come pick me up and I got in the car and I was just she knew something was you know something was off but I didn't want to tell her because my mom could like really be crazy kill somebody. <laughs> and I remember I told her and she said she did what to you <laughs> I was like I got slapped by this girl you know and I, I, I just I'm terrible at keeping secrets you know especially from my but mom slapped. yeah and what did you do Shit. oh she called the party and asked to speak to the girl and she told the girl if she sees me at school to turn the other way don't even look at me and the girl yeah, was like mom. freaked yeah, out which is crazy I mean I don't think I could do that my mom could really like you know she's a very were uh, you ha- were she you has proud a temper <laughs> Were you mortified or were you Oh, I was mortified. I was mortified. (laughs) I've always been a people pleaser. Yeah. You know, I don't like, uh, I've never liked disappointing anybody. Um, But my mom was just like, you're going to have to get over that. Yeah. (laughs) God, that whole, they're just jealous. Like my mom definitely said that to me a lot. Did you get that from your mom? Uh, Yeah, probably. I just remember, I think at some point being old enough where I was like, "Mm, they're not jealous, mom. (laughs) Like, that's not true, but thank you. Now I realize you've been lying to me all these years. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, I want to figure out some better things to say for my daughter, you know, when when it comes to that time. Now she's in the phase where it's like she's adorable and everyone <laughs> yeah, right. adores her. But, you know, those, There's a whole those lifetime hard years ahead, right. are yeah, well, on I mean, their way. What do you think about sending your daughter into middle school? I mean, I think I would have to remove my children from society and raise them on a deserted island for those three years. Oh, yeah. It's horrible. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, I'm so not there yet. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Cross that bridge. None of us uh, yet. Yeah. <laughs> no, what? But, I mean, you have to learn how to live in the world. I There's know. mean people even when you're an adult. That's true. You know? And That's true. And, and, you know, it's like trial by fire. It'll never be as bad as it is in middle school. So It's more like, how do, do I, how do I support her and how do I help her to have this sense of self that I felt like I didn't, that I really struggled with, you know? Yeah, which you actually, you mentioned, I think, in your making of video for your new album, mm -hmm. that you are trying to resolve these issues for yourself so that you don't pass them on to her. Yeah, that's which, something that I think about a lot. Yeah, I think in so many ways, parents are always trying to figure mm -hmm. that out, right? Like, fix my shit so I don't just... Don't repeat the thing. Yeah. But I yeah. think having having parents as you have it's more intuitive than than you'd think or something you know yeah. it's like it's gonna come like you have a good I mean, place to draw from and I feel like I, I'm grateful that my parents um you know I always sensed that the world was bigger than whatever my little experience was mm -hmm. yeah. uh, however painful that could be at times like emotionally as a as a young girl um, and I think that that really helped me through a lot of things. That's I, so important. That's you know, I think that lesson. helps me through a lot of things even now, knowing like perspective. You know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. You know, my life is pretty pretty damn good. It's you know everyone's life is hard for various reasons, but you know when I and also just coming from uh, coming from Haiti and and being in Haiti and seeing the type of poverty that people live in and thrive in you know it's like really attests to the mm -hmm. human spirit mm -hmm. and you know when it comes to my my own little daughter you know I hope that I can help her to see that and I and I think that she will see that because she's on tour with me yeah you know she's been on tour with me since she was two and a half wow. months and so um you know her she's like super social she's super aware of what's going on you know which really is great. has its own <laughs> moments of like oh no she knows i'm leaving <laughs> um but do you, you speak know. creole with her at all 
I, I speak more French with her because my husband's yeah. from Quebec. Ah, uh, okay. And so he's, you know, his whole family just speaks French. And um, and so we speak a lot of French in our house. But I think if, I think one of my, one of my personal life goals is to go and spend some time in Haiti so that she gets a feel for it. Yeah. And, yeah. And How much time have you spent there? Spent a fair amount of time in Haiti. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Growing up or know, after? Several, several months at a time growing mm-hmm. up okay and then weeks at a time as an adult yeah uh, playing music as an artist not playing music as an artist and i think that might change next year cool. so i'm excited mm-hmm. early next year it seems like uh cool yeah I'm so go down that party that party that party oh, yeah with your with your aunt what happens from there you see this cellist. Oh, right. oh, Thank yeah. you for bringing yeah. it. <laughs> Which party? The party I got. The party, I know. At. That's what I thought. We're going to talk more about this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, I see this cellist, and I'm just completely uh, blown away from by his playing and uh, by the context of it. I mean, it was just totally like I thought the world was like this, and it just shifted, and it's like that kind of thing. And I immediately was just like, "Do you have students? Can I can I study with you?" And so started studying with him and um and eventually he was just like you know what just come over and just let's just play you know don't let, let's let go of this like formal student teacher thing let's just play and be friends and um and so we would just play and we would just play these like crazy like west african influence grooves for like hours at a time and get lost in the feeling of like being, you know, in in this rhythmic construct that was just so outside of, you know, what I was studying at school. And um, so there was that. Is that when you started the technique that you now yeah, have developed? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But um, the other thing is I was a cocktail waitress at a music venue. Which one? In Brooklyn. It was called Zebulon. Have you yeah. guys ever been there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I was... Um, it closed down, sadly, in the past couple of years. I think they're trying to reopen it in L.A. Oh, Actually, really? There's like a big fundraising campaign online right now to um, to purchase a building so that they can reopen Zebulon. But that, that had a huge influence on me as well because I met a lot of musicians that way. Um, they, you know, the, the venue played a lot of like African music and Israeli musicians coming through. I mean... Uh, Afrobeat, free jazz, rock music. It was just so open. It was just like, this is a place where good music happens. So you were a waitress there. And I was a cocktail waitress there. Yeah. And I like, you know, there would be like so many cool people hanging out there all the time. I remember that's how I got to meet all the members of the band TV on the radio. (laughs) And um, this was during college. This was during college. Yeah. And Antibalis Afrobeat Orchestra. And I ended up uh, playing in an Afrobeat band with the the lead singer of that band, whose name is Amayo. He has a band called the Foo Orchestra. And so, you know, I, that's where I really found a musical community that I felt like, oh, this is like a bunch of weirdos like me. <laughs> and, you know, everyone's really passionate about the music and about the messages behind the music and, and uh, the people who have paved the way for this music to, to even be in this venue, in this space. And... Um, and so I really connected to that. And, um, and so it was a combination of like, you know, having a a cellist who I just admired and loved so much and is a really good friend of mine, uh, to this day, um, just influencing my 
perception of what's possible um, and and be ha- finding a community of musicians that that allowed me to to explore my cello playing and and who thought what I was doing was cool yeah um, and I really I loved that when I did you start that. playing banjo and I started playing banjo after I moved to New Orleans. Okay, so not till later. Yeah, and I learned about, you know, that banjo was like the main rhythm rhythm instrument in a lot of older uh, traditional jazz bands. And also, banjo uh, has a huge history in Haitian music. And that's when, you know, I started kind of getting back to Haitian music after I moved to New Orleans. Okay. So when you graduated college, Mm -hmm. what was the move? What was the plan? The plan was, oh, my God, how do you become a musician? Because I, I wasn't like I, I knew I actually I think I was a little bit too rebellious in college. Sometimes I wish that I had like worked a little bit harder on my classical chops um, because I was just like, eh, I know that this isn't my path, so I'm just not going to work as hard for it, you know. But that is what you were studying. You mm-hmm. continued on the classical path because there really yeah. wasn't an alternative. Yeah, and I showed my classical teacher some of the other stuff I was going over, and she was like, whoa. And I remember she said to me, uh, you know, I know you're going to do music with your life. I just don't know how because I wish that we had one more year to, to like, you know, work on some more stuff. I remember her saying that to me. Hmm. Was she saying it in a positive way or in a... I think she was saying it in a positive <laughs> way. Not she ready. was like, yeah, she was like, you're a musician, you're, you know, you're definitely going to be a musician somehow, but um, I don't know, you know, because the, the classical a scene is just so, I mean, it's hardcore. You have to it's be right. 150% committed, maybe even more. To, to practicing and you know it's it's really hard work and it's work that I wasn't even interested in doing so yeah. like you know of <laughs> course gonna... my teacher was like well I don't know how this is gonna go for you um but, but... there wasn't a closed-mindedness to the the ways of music that you were playing the things no, that you were showing her she no wasn't... I think it was just uh it's all context I mean this this my teacher was super accomplished chamber musician went to Juilliard I mean she she had made the dream come true she toured with a uh, a chamber ensemble for a lot of her life and um, she was just in, this incredible incredible woman and um, and totally also also totally different in a lot of ways too she's lesbian Buddhist you know and she like shared with me some of her Buddhist philosophy which was really powerful um in just understanding life and understanding life as a musician um and i i really admired her but i i knew that the boxes that you know she lived in and and that she Mm -hmm. created and and that even the ones that she broke down weren't the ones that i was going to break down and weren't the ones that i was going to live in and so you know there's a little bit of a disconnect there because it's like okay i'm a classical cellist teaching classical music that's my job that was her job to me you know Mm -hmm. and I think I think we did we did a lot of stuff there but I kind of you know I wish that it's hard it's like how how hard do you push someone that doesn't want to really be pushed in that direction um and so yeah so I so you're working with her you're working with this other teacher who you found and became a mentor and friend and um and then what happened towards the end of college? Towards the end of college, I did my recital. I graduated. 
I so you're um, saying how do I make this how do I do this I, I started teaching that's when I started teaching which actually really helped me with my musicianship in a lot of ways because um, I was teaching oh my god it was so crazy actually I was teaching classes of five to seven year old kids cello like a class of like five kids with tiny little cellos and they're all like ah, like about to break <laughs> things um so that I, sounds so hard it was so hard but it was so fun so and cute. I loved it I loved it I really loved it I, I didn't think that that was what I wanted to do with my life yeah but I really you know they taught me so much just by having to explain what I was doing and and go kind of to the ground level of that I think if I ever teach again that I would want to teach like very very beginners because I when I started learning cello my technique was terrible because I didn't really learn the right way and um, I think it just sets you up for so much better music making, you know, to have to have good technique that's healthy and that allows you to breathe and be comfortable with your body. Because, you know, cello is kind of awkward <laughs> in a way. Um, so it's like, how do you deal with that? How do you adjust to that? And the way that your body is sort of dealing with that experience affects what comes out of the instrument. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed you know, sharing that with these like little, tiny, little, adorable kids who like called me Miss Layla and <laughs> yeah, just really, Same really sweet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I was also kind of like, eh, this isn't really totally me. This isn't really what I want to. Yeah. Were you gigging around <coughs> town also or? I was gigging with a lot of like singer songwriters. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, reading charts and, you know, people who have like a little string section for their gig. And so that was fun and it was a good learning experience. Um, but it was also still like really formal in a way. Like I remember just like, I don't know, just not, not being particularly into the music, but like reading the charts and, you know, being professional or whatever. And And was there like the, the creative percolation happening that's led to where you are now was that starting then it was starting then I started to feel like maybe I should start study composition because I really have an ear for for things you know I hear certain things that I want to exist um and I was I had taken a film music class and I thought maybe I'll do film music that seems like a cool thing to do um and I had worked actually on a couple films and that was really fun for me um, just co- composing, you know, through improvisation. Um, and then and that's when I started something called the Langston Hughes Project, which was uh, writing songs to Langston Hughes' poetry, kind of using his words as the lyrics and, and composing music to his songs. And um, it was uh, it's such a, a great way to to take the pressure off a little bit from being like having to be like the songwriter mm-hmm. and uh, to play with these words that are already so moving and so touching and, and so deep. How did you choose yeah, how, did, how did that start? I just was going through the, through this anthology of Langston Hughes poetry and just the, the, the poems that I enjoyed reading. Those were the ones that I, you know, certain poems I really felt a rhythmic connection to, and I said, "Oh, I can hear how it could work in this way," and um, and that's how it started. 
And that was just your own, you, were you saying to yourself, I'm going to make an album of this or? I thought maybe this should be an album. <laughs> but it was funny because I wasn't even really singing then. I had other people singing all the songs. You would write the melody? I would write the melody. And then eventually one of my friends one day was like, why don't you just sing the songs yourself? Because, you know, you, you have a way, you have a kind of a specific thing that you hear that you're always trying to get at that isn't happening. So why don't you just do it yourself? Was there ever a time, were you like leading the band or, or directing and and they would say, and you're like, you're not giving me what I want. Yeah, I mean, were kind, you? Yeah, that's totally kind of how it was. And, um, and eventually I decided, yeah, maybe I could be a singer. And I started singing and, you know, I felt like um, really exposed and that was really intense for me. Yeah. Um, but I also felt like, oh my God, I think like a window to my soul just like opened up and I feel like yeah, so that's probably free scary all of a sudden. Yeah, cool. yeah. I mean, especially even though I talk a lot about, you know, I think my classical training is a big part of my musicianship, even though I talk a lot about not wanting to be a part of it all the time, the, the scene culturally. And I think that that was like a moment of like, you know, this is where I get to be free, but how do I be free when I don't feel like I'm allowed to be, you know? Mm. Um, but the more I started singing and then I started singing in front of other people and I got more and more confident. And, uh, and eventually I thought, yeah, I should sing these songs. And so then, you know, a few years went by and a, a few of my friends knew that I had this project and my friend um, Nikhil said, you really need to record those songs before you leave New York um, because you've been working on it with these musicians and they're here and you should just do that. So before that you, you moved to New Orleans? Before I moved to New Orleans, okay. yeah, excuse me. Hmm. Um, and uh, and so he kind of supported me in, in creating these demos and um, and I recorded four of the songs that I had been working on and then I had a little demo which now I think like, wow, that served me so much mm. um, because otherwise it would have just been something I was talking about that uh -huh. didn't really exist yet. And what did you do with the demo? I gave them to my, the first, my first manager. I gave them to him and said, check these out. What do you think? And he was like, this is incredible, this music. I was like, really? You like it? I mean, it's one thing to hear that from your friends. It's another thing to hear it from people that uh you know work in the music industry yeah and kind of wait is this before carolina chocolate drops happened this is before carolina wow okay chocolate drops happened yeah it's been a lot how you did guys you really go in deep yeah <laughs> <laughs> well you went there with us which is amazing yeah. yeah how did so at what point did you get a manager well so i was playing in the street in new orleans and a man by the name of tim duffy approached me one day and said, do you have a sister named Sabine McCalla that goes to Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina? <laughs> and I was like, yes, that's my sister. Um, she had gone to a Carolina chocolate drop show, and she told them that she plays the fiddle, and they were looking for a new fiddle player because they were having a personnel change. And she was supposed to audition for them, but she was like, oh, I'm totally not ready to audition to be in that band. she older or younger? She's younger. Okay. And she said, but you, you should go find my sister, Layla. She lives in New Orleans. She gave him the core. Just walk through the streets and you'll find her. You should go find my sister. <laughs> Not here's her email. Yeah. She's busting. Never told me about partner. this even. She never even told me about this. Yeah. She gave him the coordinates of where I would be. Wait, really? Yeah. 
<laughs> what year was this? Royal and contact because he walked up looking like he was looking for someone. Oh, what? You know, and it was really funny. Um, Only in New Orleans. Like, yeah, that's exactly. so funny. That's crazy. Yeah, it's kind of, it is pretty crazy. But <laughs> when said, was this? Uh, this was in April of 2011. Okay. And so he said to me, like, I manage a band called the Carolina Chocolate Drops. and Had you heard of them? And I had heard of them, yeah, especially since moving to New Orleans. I started to get more into Cajun and Creole music and old-time music and um, square dancing and, mm-hmm. you know, just going out and dancing to, like, that kind of roots music. And um, and so he connected me to Rhiannon, um, Rhiannon Giddens, who was one of the founders of that band. And I went to her house, and we, I guess it was kind of an audition, but it was also kind of a hang to see if we could hang. Did she live in New Orleans? No, she lived in uh, North Carolina. So he comes, and he probably didn't live in New Orleans either. No. Okay, so he... He went there just to find you. He went to find you on the street. Well, he was there on vacation with his family, but that was, I think, part of the mission. Did he listen to you playing before he approached you? A little bit, Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, oh, okay, someone's about to give me money. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> but, but yeah, he had so all these did. questions for me. And I was kind of like, oh, this is interesting. Someone is interested yeah. in me. And then so, you flew yourself to meet her, to meet Rhiannon? Well, he, he bought me a ticket and to, to meet Rhiannon. Wow. And, um, and, yeah, I didn't really understand what was going on, to tell you the <laughs> truth completely. It was just like, pretty okay, surreal. this is yeah. cool. Yeah, I was like, okay. I mean, it's like the dream. And I mean, and this is like when they had been like, um, you know, they had just won a Grammy for their album, Genuine Negro Jig. And so I knew that they were like successful people, yeah. you know? This is like the busking dream or yeah. like the musician's yes. dream. You're literally standing on the street. Yeah. And someone says, here, come play with this <laughs> Grammy award winning band. Yeah. I mean, and I think that there are a lot of reasons why it sort of happened that way. I, first of all, there's of so few, you know, black African-American string players who are interested in playing old time music. Um, you know, I can I probably know them, like, honestly, but at this point. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, the diver- diversity in that kind of music is very few and far between oh yeah yeah and i mean diversity of of all kinds not just the right. black and white thing it's just like it's such a white scene mm-hmm. um and you know to have a band called the carolina chocolate drops playing old time music that you know and sort of reclaiming it was mm-hmm. just such a powerful thing to be a part of and it was such a big learning experience for me um, yeah, it was pretty, I mean, so, you know, within a few months, then I'm in Nashville at Buddy Miller's studio recording on Leaving Eden, which was their second, like, no, Grammy nominated album. Um, yeah, and it was just amazing to be part of this thing that was just so successful and powerful and, you know, selling out theaters and venues across the country and to be like, this is kind of what I wanted you know this is this <laughs> right, feels like, okay. this is funny yeah this, this is, is funny <laughs> how this has come together um you know there were uh, that that band has since broken up and it was hard too because I had never been on the road in that way being far away from you know my boyfriend my home my bicycle my my yeah. dog my comfort mm-hmm. things yeah was really hard for me 
Um, but now, you know, it's like, that was like my grad school, right. you know, yeah. that was like my training for being on the road. And I, I say that as I'm like sick and playing at Lincoln Center tonight. But <laughs> <laughs> that's life, you know. But uh, it's almost like you hadn't imagined being a, a touring musician or. Well, I'd imagined it, but I didn't. I think I and I had done some tours before, but not like that, not with like a tour manager and a schedule. You know, I was like rambling with mm-hmm. my friends before and going from venue to venue and, you know, f- having this really connected experience with my bandmates in the audience. And this was like another thing. It was like I'm a hired right. gun in this project that is doing this specific thing. And I'm not part of the decision making in, you know, a lot of ways, um, though, though I was a, a, definitely a part of the creative process. It was, you know, it was like there a was lot, a it was overwhelming. Already. Yeah. It was like, okay, I'm like a cog in this wheel. Mm-hmm. And like, how do I, how do I sustain this? You know, when you're away for three weeks and then you have 10 days at home and then you go out again for two weeks and you have two days at home sometimes. And then you go out again and I wasn't used to that at all. So it was a shock to me. Yeah. Um, and it, it's hard, you know, we're all in the van. Everyone's, yeah. you smell, everyone smells, yeah. you hear everyone's <laughs> breath, you know. And you What's know, your guys' tricks for crunchy. being in the van? Oh, coffee. Sometimes <coughs> if you like have a bag of coffee, like coffee grounds or something, that'll keep it smelling. Nice. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there's yeah that's like, like a refrigerator. That. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Did you leave snacks. the band before they disbanded? I did. Okay. I did. Yeah. There You're was, like, it's there was solo kind, time. Well, there was kind of a crossroads and yeah. it was like, okay, um, you know, one of the, fo- one of the other founding members, Dom Flemens was going to leave the band and, um, and they really wanted me to stay and Rhiannon was going to continue with the band with new members. And it was hard, you know, cause I, of course I didn't want to disappoint anybody, but I really felt like, I don't think that this is really my thing. This isn't really like home for me. And if I don't do it now, then maybe I'll never do it. Um, you mean like artistically it wasn't home for you or the lifestyle? I think partially or... artistically it wasn't home for me. Um, you know, and I, I just, I just didn't feel like it was my thing. And I felt like I had a thing that I was developing because during that time, you know, it, it allowed me to develop even further the Langston Hughes material. I, I was learning a lot of Haitian songs and, mm-hmm. and they, the band was very gracious and, and featured a couple of those songs during the live performances. Oh, and so yeah. I got practice, cool. you know, performing and singing. And, you know, it's funny. I, I just I really grew a lot during that time. Um, so while you were on the road, you were working on your own project. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but also didn't really know, you know, what the container for that would be, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the long run. Um, and eventually I just decided, you know what, I got to make this album happen. And I think I, I'm going to call it Very Colored Songs because that was the, the, the song Heart of Gold. Um that I that song that I call Heart of Gold is derived from a poem called Very Colored Song, and I felt like this really kind of sums up a lot of the things that I'm feeling about this record and and about these songs as a collection of material, and um, and yeah, I, you know, my I I had the same management as the Chocolate Drops, and and they were supportive, and they said, you know, all right, let's do this, and I released the album in France 
uh, before it came out in the States. And it was my first time like hiring a publicist and having to deal with, you know, all those elements of the business that I hadn't even had to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I still don't want to have to consider them. (laughs) (laughs) Not the most fun part. (laughs) Wait, but you funded a lot of that album through Kickstarter, right? Yeah. Which is so crazy to me. I naively would think, oh, you're in the chocolate drop. So somehow there would just be tons of money that someone would throw at you to make your own album. But Kickstarter. Definitely not. Yeah. (laughs) No, I was really lucky um, to be able to work with a videographer that had worked with the Carolina chocolate drops that had a lot of footage of me performing with the chocolate drops and came to New Orleans and interviewed me about the record and another friend of mine um, helped me to do like the the pitch sort of video where you're saying like this is who I am which took about 5,000 takes because I was just like this is torture this is terrible (laughs) I just had to shoot one on Sunday and it was fucking torture oh my god it's the worst horrible I was just like okay I'm gonna try to not suck this time (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) Because you don't want to sound too scripted, but, you know, and eventually it, it really came together nicely. And um, and people, I think, really loved the video. And then Kickstarter, I got really lucky because Kickstarter themselves, I guess, saw the video and really liked it. And so they plugged it on their, oh, huge. On their huge. newsletter, That's awesome. which goes out to like 1.5 million people or something. And so, you know, I, and I was so, I was so naive. I just, I asked for $5,000. What'd you get? Not enough to do anything. (laughs) Um, And I, I got over $20,000 in donations. That's That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. What were your incentives? (laughs) Like, what did you offer people? (laughs) Well, I offered them a poster. Uh Uh-huh. Some Haitian art. Okay. That was just, ended up being just a photograph of me. Okay. Um, which I, I, you know, I, it's tough because then you have to follow through. The follow through <laughs> is such a big part of it because it's like otherwise it's like you know you're just stealing. Yeah, yeah, and you're not. Does you're Kickstarter not, follow up with you on that to make sure that happens? No, no, it's all on you and your connection to the fans. And so yeah. that was hard because I had my management helping me, you know, disperse the rewards. But then I also. You know, all the emails were going to me, so there was like a communication <laughs> breakdown yeah. a little bit that was happening there. And, yeah, Sorry, this is not the most interesting. Except, a, I think if you're a, doing a Kickstarter, it's very <laughs> interesting to figure out how this no, all works. No, I mean it's yeah. such a. It's I think that I I didn't really think about yeah how big of a responsibility that was beforehand because I thought okay we'll just get the record, and also I just thought well I'm just trying to make five thousand dollars so right. like you know and then I, I thought like okay let's try to like get to like the ten thousand dollar mark and you know provide further incentives because then it was like you know once once people saw that it was going well it was like okay well the options for how to release it and how to share it with people beyond the Kickstarter you know fan club is became like a real possibility you know um and I was really, really thankful for that. Uh, really lucky, and yeah. and I think the album. I'm really proud of that album, and I think it did really well. And I'm excited to sort of push it again with this new album coming yeah, out. Tell us about it. The new album is called "A Day for the Hunter, A Day for the Prey," and um, 
that's derived from a Haitian proverb. Um, also the title of a book that I read uh, by a writer named Gage Avril, who's an ethnomusicologist and who I actually have emailed with um, quite a bit over the past few years. And it, the, the book is about music and power and politics in Haiti, but I, I kind of felt like that, that uh, like over the, over the 20th century, um, which was really interesting to hear how, how so much Haitian music is so linked to like uh, social commentary mm. and political commentary and um, and then kind of zooming out from that experience and also sort of zooming into myself um, you know how much of the things that I write about mm. are, are social commentary and political commentary and the things that inspire me are what's happening in society and even though even though some of the songs are sort of like first person it just was like, uh, man, sometimes it really feels like we live in a man-eat-man world. And it felt like a day for the hunter, a day for the prey was a good a good phrase for how I'm feeling about the world in this moment. Um, I also wrote a song called A Day for the Hunter, A Day for the Prey um, about uh, what it's like to be an immigrant and be in a boat and um, and the, the decision, and to travel by boat, and, and the decision of whether to stay or whether to go and having to deal with a lot of structures in society that don't really support people and and how it creates these situations. So that's how the album opens. Wow. And um and it has a lot of elements of traditional music and uh, a few more of my original songs and also Louisiana traditional music because being placed in New Orleans I've just absorbed so much more than I think if I was in New York about the history, Haitian history, Louisiana history, French history, the United States history, uh, you know, at large, and how intricately linked all of those things are. Um, you know, I I learned like the you know that during the Haitian Revolution was one of the reasons why uh, France sold Louisiana to the United States, and at that time Louisiana was way bigger than it is now, and so you know. I, I'm a strong believer in understanding the past in order to understand the present and and to 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 see a way forward, and um, and that's what this this album really is about to me. Word, beautiful, cool, can't wait. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah. All right, Layla, thank you. Yeah, thank you. This guys. has been awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. This song is called Vietnam. It's uh, originally written by a songwriter named Abner J. Off mission, 
I'll be sailing on the deep blue sea I'll be back in the late, late spring And I hope you will be looking the same Vietnam Vietnam Look for me, boys Cause here I come I don't have anything to offer you but a maybe not even a ring to put on your finger but if you wait 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 for me I will return with an honorable discharge from the Navy And I don't mean maybe Oh Lord Save me For my pretty baby Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.